All right, I've entitled this message, My Father, My Provider. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we come before you, we remember your word. You told us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Lord, we're asking that you do that this morning, you would, that you would instruct us, you would teach us, you would give us your counsel here this morning so that, so that Lord, our lives might align more fully, more completely with what you want for us. And Father, we thank you that you're going to do that because you're so faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, Matthew 6, 32, it says, this is Jesus talking, by the way, it says, the Gentiles seek after these things. He's talking about the, uh, the physical things that we need for life, talking about food and shelter and clothing, that kind of stuff. The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And if you read this whole thing in context, which we'll do in a little while, uh, you'll understand this is not just, oh yeah, I know about it have a nice life. No, it's that he's taking care of those things. He's providing them for us. He knows our needs. When, uh, when Barb and I were first married, we moved here from Wisconsin. And uh, one of the criteria for the school of ministries that we came for was that you come by faith and find means of support for your family. And honestly, to this day, I don't know if I was just really stupid or if I had that much faith um, but we took that very, very literally. After we put the, we, we, we had a place to move into, thank you, Dave Martin, he moved out of a house, we moved into it. Um, we had a place to move into once we put the deposit down and the first month's rent, we had like $100 to our name, which, all right, granted, that was several thousand years ago, and so that's like, like maybe like $4.2 billion today, all right, but I'm exaggerating slightly. But it wasn't a lot of money, really, and we didn't have jobs. But God somehow took care of us. You know, I look back on that first year of our marriage and uh, amazingly, God just provided over and over in some pretty miraculous ways. Fast forward 14 years later when I started traveling and ministering full time, that first year was pretty tough from a financial perspective. I've told numerous people over the years that Honestly, I can't figure out how we still own a home, uh, how we survived through that time, because on paper, we shouldn't have made it through. And yet God did some miraculous things. Uh, I remember, uh, uh, some, many of you will remember Pastor Leroy. By the way, he's going to be here two weeks from now preaching Sunday morning, so just letting you know. Um, but when he was here, he had cows. He butchered one of the cows, gave us half the meat. We didn't have any money, but we're eating steak. It was pretty cool. Um, Amy, our daughter, was born during that first year of full-time uh, traveling ministry, which was really a surprise for us. Um, we, we, I left Psalmist Magazine. We switched insurance companies. The new insurance company wouldn't cover a birth for an entire year, which was fine because we had no intentions of having another child at that point. And God had other ideas, and so Amy um, was born. And w the due date was September 2. The new insurance kicked in September 1. And I'm going, God, you got a problem here because this was not our idea. And Amy surprised us the first time by being conceived. She surprised us the second time by be being born two weeks early, <coughs> August 22nd. 
and so the insurance company wouldn't cover anything. But somebody told us about a thing in the state of Missouri at the time called prior quarter coverage uh, through the Division of Family Services, which they would look at your uh, income, or in our case, lack thereof, for the last three months and help you with medical bills. They looked at what I hadn't made and they actually took care of the entire birth, more than what the insurance company would have taken care of. God miraculously provided for us over and over and over again. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Steve made a great statement last week in his sermon when he talked about how um, our employment and God's provision are not necessarily tied together. Oh, they are in general. I get that. God provides for us through our work. I totally understand that. But at the same time, there is not always a one-to-one correlation between those two. There are times that God brings in help for us, provision for us in ways that go way beyond our job situation. Ultimately, we need to recognize that God is our provider. It's not our employment. It's not our job. It's the Lord. And in a culture like ours that is so fixated on money, that can be a challenge for us. It really can. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7, 8, and 9, it says this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's some, there's some disagreement between, uh, among biblical scholars about who this actually is that's writing these words. It says that these are uh, um, among the sayings of Agor. Uh, but many biblical scholars think that Agor is a pseudonym for Solomon that he's writing like he's somebody else, that he's using a pen name here so he can, can say things that he normally wouldn't say. Interestingly, many people would say that the strongest argument against that idea that this really can't be Solomon is these verses right here. Because if you think about it, when these words were written, Solomon was really wealthy. He had a whole bunch of money and here he is saying, don't let me be rich. But see, I think honestly, that that makes the case for this being Solomon even stronger, personally. Because Solomon knew the futility of riches. They are not the panacea, the end of all problems that many people think they are. They're just not. And Solomon, of all people, knew that well. And so, writing under an alias name, he puts down the idea of having great wealth. I think Solomon is warning us that riches can cause us to turn away from God. If we don't have some, some need, some want, some lack in our lives, if, if our every desire is immediately fulfilled, it's really easy for us to forget about God. Think about the, the church in Revelation, the church of Laodicea. They said they had prospered. They were rich. They were without need. Remember what God told him? He said that they were wrong, that they were poor, they were blind, they were naked because they had left him behind. They might have wealth from a financial perspective, but they didn't have God. 
the deceitfulness of riches can cause God to be forgotten in our lives. So that's why I think this is, this is Solomon warning us. He's holding up the danger sign. Don't go there. It's not going to be pretty. Now, I will say that even though I believe that Solomon, but who, regardless, whoever said this, that this is a prayer and it's in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's supposed to be a prayer for all of us all the time. So the reality is that there are some people who can, can, can handle riches, can handle wealth a lot better than others. Just honestly, that's the way it is. And I think a lot of it has to do with our priorities and our focus. See, somebody who, who wants to have a lot of money and so that they'll never have to worry about having any financial concerns, I think somebody like that is not a good candidate to have a lot of money. Because you're too focused on it. Somebody that really doesn't care, it's not that big of a deal, I think that person is probably the person that uh, can handle it a lot better. If you're familiar with um, Victor Hugo's classic book, Les Miserables, or if you've seen a a stage production or one of the movies about it. Remember the, the main character, Jean Valjean, he ended up with lots of money. He was a very wealthy man. And throughout the story, after he becomes wealthy, he's always very generous with his money. He's helping people, trying to better their lives. And I remember reading it years ago, and I thought that he was and honestly, he was ridiculously uh, generous with the people who uh, worked for him, his employees. You know, I think of the guy that had the, the cart accident, who has the unpronounceable last name, if, if any of you remember, um, th that he helped him. The, the Fantine, the, the, the woman who was pregnant out of wedlock, uh, you know, just on and on. He was so generous. See, I think somebody like that, who really doesn't care all that much about money, is somebody that can have money and not be scathed by it, if I can say it that way. He clearly held it loosely. But I will say this. I think the more money you have, the more difficult it is to handle it well. It has a, it has a tendency to get a hold of us, to, if I can say it this way, wrap its tentacles around us. And then at some point, God gets kind of pushed out of the picture. And so Solomon here says, I, I really don't want to be rich. He knew what it was like. But he also prayed, don't let me be poor. I think that's kind of interesting. Why, why was that? Solomon recognized that if he had no money at all, that he might, as he puts it, steal and profane the name of my God. It, if you don't, if you don't have a way of meeting your legitimate physical needs, it's easy to begin to try to take matters into your own hands and go after an illegitimate way of handling those needs, if you will. Solomon says, I might be tempted to steal. Again, back to Les Miserables, if you remember the beginning of the story, Jean Valjean was very poor, his sister's kids were apparently literally starving to death and so he had no means of support for them and so he did what many people would do, many people have done in that situation. He stole food in order to, to help them out. And yes, I realize it's a, a fictional story, but it's a real life truth that's going on there. P 
Poverty can cause us to do things, wrong things, things that we shouldn't be doing, like stealing, and that's why, why Solomon here says, don't let me be poor because I might be tempted to steal. Poverty can cause, be a cause for crime. We can see that in our, our society today, and although that's not, the, that's not the foundational reason for crime, that, that would be sin, the foundational reason, all right? And yet, it's still... Poverty can be a, something that causes crime to happen, especially certain ones like stealing. So Solomon says, don't let me be poor. I don't want to be tempted like that. Now, I will say that those of us who are on the, the right side of the cross, those of us who know Jesus as our, our Savior, we've known the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus because of his death and resurrection, we know a higher truth, and it's found in... Philippians, and Trish read it earlier from verse 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, those words are so familiar to us that I was looking in different translations just to see it in a different light, different context. And I came across the, the New Century version. I really like this. It says it this way. I have learned to be satisfied with the things I have and with, whatever, and with everything that happens. I know how to live when I am poor and I know how to live when I have plenty. I have learned the secret of being happy at any time in everything that happens. When I have enough to eat and when I go hungry. When I have more than I need and when I do not have enough. I can do all things through Christ because he gives me strength. Whether I have plenty to eat or whether I'm hungry, whether I have abundance or when I'm in need, doesn't make any difference because I can do these things because Christ gives me the strength. It's because of my relationship with Him. When we're, when we're walking in relationship, right relationship with the Lord, then all of the stuff, whether it's a lot or a little, is all secondary. It's not nearly as important. You know, that idea reminds me of something that Asaph said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you? All the stuff, not that big of a deal. I want God. That's what he's saying here. When our focus, our gaze is, is fixed on him, then honestly everything else pales in comparison. It's just not that important. Knowing God is more important, is primary. It's, a, it's above riches or need goes back to the set of scriptures that we have seen over and over in this series that we're in right now. From Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you will of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and he is supplying those things into your life. So when we know that, what should we do? We should go running out after those things. We should be pursuing them, right? No, we should be pursuing God. And again, this is not, uh, this is not a, a, a sermon to, to convince you to not work, to not do those kind of things. No, no. You, you heard me a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how important that is, about being employed, about doing a good job, about being diligent. Those are all important things. But first priority, number one, is knowing Him. Knowing the Father. Steve talked a lot about that last week. I want to come at this from a, a different perspective for a minute. If someone were to ask you the name of God, there are a lot of different options that we could look at in Scripture. There are a lot of different possibilities. But the majority of the names of God that we see in the Bible are all, if I can put it this way, post-sin. They came after the fall. And here's why I think this is important. It's because I think that most of those names, uh, they, are, they are making up for a lack that came as a result of sin coming into our world. I'm going to give you some examples, but before I can give you the examples, I, I feel like I need to do a very lengthy parenthetical statement here. Um, because I'm going to talk about Yahweh Jireh, and some of you are going to go, isn't that supposed to be Jehovah Jireh? All right, let me explain. Some of you already know this, some of you may not, so let, bear with me here for a minute, okay? When you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, capital, uh, the word Lord in all capitals, biblical scholars refer to that as the sacred tetragrammaton. I love saying that word, it makes me sound smart. Um, it is transliterated into our language as the letters Y-H-W-H. -H. It is pronounced Yahweh. In the Hebrew, there are no vowels. The vowels are understood with the word, all right? And scribes, centuries ago, when they were translating, they felt that that word was too holy to write. And so rather than translate it into our language, they wrote it, with all capitals so that we would know that was the word, but they didn't actually have to write it. It also differentiates between that word Lord and the word that really should be translated as Lord in the Hebrew, the word Adonai. Many of you would recognize that, that, that word. Now, keep that in mind. You also have to understand that in different languages, the same letter can be pronounced differently. So if someone were to walk in here right now and from another country, and they were to say, we just want justice to be done. What did I just say? Exactly. But the, the pronunciation is different, right? You understand that. You know, if, you're, if you're a baseball fan, you're watching a baseball game, somebody whose first name is spelled J-E-S-U-S -S, comes up to bat. He's from Latin America. How do they pronounce it? Jesus, exactly right. That, that Y and J thing, the V and the W, they can be interchangeable and go back and forth depending on, on the, the language. So keep that in mind. Um, besides the scribes who thought the word Yahweh was too holy to write, there were many people who thought it was too holy to speak. And so 
someone, I have no idea who, honestly, came up with the idea. What they're going to do is they're going to take the vowel sounds from the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, and put them into the letters Y-H-W-H. And then, give me that next one, Peter, yeah. And then keep in mind the, 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 the difference in language. So the Y becomes a J and the W becomes a V. You now have a whole new word. It's, give me the next one. So Jehovah really isn't God's name. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't use that word. I'm pretty sure that when we say it, God knows who we're talking about and to, all right? Everybody with me? Okay. But you guys know me well enough that I like to be accurate, probably ridiculously so. Um, so bear precise, thank you. So bear with me here as I'm doing this so you understand. That, all right, Tom, that was a really long parenthetical statement to get to the point, but... Keep in mind, we're going to look at these names of God. And I, again, I want, you to, I want you to remember, these are all, I believe, they're, they're post-sin names, and they came about as a result of a lack. Think about it. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord our provider. Prior to the fall into sin, nobody ever questioned who was providing for them. There was no, no doubt about it. We need to know that in our fallen society. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord my healer. In our fallen world, we need healing. That wasn't necessary prior to the fall into sin. Yahweh Mekadishkem, the Lord who sanctifies. Yahweh Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. We need sanctification. We need righteousness. But before the fall, those things were inherent. It wasn't something that needed to be provided from the outside. We already had it. Are you with me? Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. We, in our fallen world, we need peace today. But prior to the fall into sin, there was no lack of peace. See, all of these names, I believe, came about as a result of the effects of sin in our world. So if you really, well, and I'm not saying we shouldn't use these names. We live in a sin-filled world. I get that, all right? But if you really want to know the name that God wants to be known by, by his people, who would you ask for that question? I think Jesus would really be a really good option. And what did he say? We're supposed to pray our... Do you know that in the four Gospels, the word Father is used for God 175 times, almost all of them, by Jesus? The rest of the New Testament writers use that same term 70 more times in the New Testament. I somehow think this might be the right answer for the question. How does he want us to know him? Father. You know, my dad's name was Richard Kreuter. I never once called him that. I called him dad. And that wasn't a title. That was the name that I called him. You know, I love the, uh, the word Abba in the Bible. It comes from an Aramaic origin. It means Papa or Daddy. Th think, about, think about a little child learning to speak, and they just do these simple little sounds. What do they say? Dada, Mama, Abba. That's the idea of that word. There is, a, there is an innocence and a trust that is inherent in that word.
And you and I get to use that word with God. Romans chapter 8, 15, 16, and 17. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Lord has adopted us. We, we, weren't, we weren't accidents. We weren't surprises. We weren't whoops, babies. No, he intentionally and purposefully reached out and adopted us, drew us into his family. We are loved by him. You're a child of God. Same thing in Galatians chapter four, because you are sons of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're a child of God. And you can, you can use that intimate language, Abba, loving heavenly father, daddy. The one who knows you the very best is the same one who loves you the most. You know, it's crazy to us when we hear the stories about a, a father who teaches his children to lie and to steal and to pilfer. But think about it. Why, why do things like that seem so jarring, so jolting to us? It's because we recognize inherently that that's not what a father should be doing. Well, one more time back to uh, Les Miserables. You may remember Monsieur Thenardier, depending on whether you read the book or see a movie or whatever. He and his wife have between one and three children. Um, but he teaches them to exploit others for his own gain. Now, again, I realize it's a fictional story, but when I first read that book years ago, it just struck me as being particularly heinous that there could be people like that out there who would do something like that. And yet we know there are. You guys have heard the stories. You might know somebody like that. But that's not how our Heavenly Father is. He loves us. He cares for us. He takes care of us. He provides our needs. Philippians 4.19, again, that Trish read earlier, God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's His promise. He is with you. Your heavenly Father, Abba, is supplying your needs. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Last weekend, uh, we had a, family reunion, our extended family from all over the country, and it was here in this area. And my brother-in-law from Milwaukee made an interesting comment. He said that uh, uh, he has never seen anyone who enjoys being a father as much as my son David. And honestly, I think he's right. David's a, he's not here this morning. He doesn't get to hear this, sorry. David's a great dad. Oh, he doesn't let his kids get away with things they shouldn't be doing. But at the same time, he, he dotes on them, he plays with them, he enjoys them, he provides for them. He is a great father. But you know, as much as I think he's a great father, he's nowhere close to our heavenly father. He loves us, takes care of us in ways we can't even begin to imagine. I want you to think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus had, Jesus had such a close relationship with his father that at the moment of that crisis, he knows he is going to the cross. He knows what's about to happen. And yet he still says, Father, I trust you. I mean, think about it. Think about the words there. Dad, I really don't want to go through this. And I know you could change the whole situation with one word. But not what I want. I trust you, Abba. I want what you want. What if you and I had a relationship with the Father like that? That we trusted Him that much? That regardless of what was going on, that we can still say, I trust you, Father. Some of you might remember my friend John Barkanik. He's preached here a couple of times. He said it like this. The more I know God, the more I trust Him. But trust fails for lack of relationship. And he's right. If we really know him, it's going to cause us to trust him more and more. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I find that there are times that my prayers can sound more like whining than prayers. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Come on. I'm guessing that there are some here that maybe at some point you've been going... God, the car wouldn't start again this morning and I couldn't get to work. And how am I supposed to provide for my family when you won't even give us a car that works? There might be some of you who are going, Lord, don't you care that I'm single? Don't you want me to be happy and to be married? You know, I find that when my prayers start sounding more like complaints than prayers that that's the time that I need to go back to the cross say Lord forgive me I'm not trusting you the way you want me to Lord, would you change my heart As Steve talked last week about the time when he was a little boy and his father had him in the pool and was holding him, took him into the deep end, and Steve said he got panicked. Now he realizes he was in absolutely no danger. Everything was fine, but at the time he was panicked. I'm guessing that Steve Miller is not the only one that's ever experienced that, and I'm not talking about an earthly father in a swimming pool. I'm guessing there are some of us who've experienced that very thing in life. I talked earlier about Barb and I's first year of marriage and then 14 years later when I started traveling full-time. Well, here we are 25 years after that one. And in some ways, I feel like we're back to the same point because requests for ministry have dropped off dramatically. And I'm going, God, what's going on here? But because we have seen his faithfulness, I know 
that our God is going to provide. Oh, don't misunderstand. There are times that my prayers sound like whining on occasion. I'm just being honest with you. But I know that my God will supply all my needs because He is faithful. And I realized as I was writing this message that this doesn't sound much like a, a sermon about prosperity, the, <laughs> the series that we're in right now, but really it is. Because if you remember what Wayne told us, I think three weeks ago, when he said that prosperity from a biblical perspective is really about the abundant life that Jesus promised and that that, the abundant life, is really about relationship with the Father. And it kind of makes sense. God has more than supplied all of your needs, hasn't he? I mean, you're here today. You're still alive. You got clothes on, thank God. <laughs> God has more than supplied all of your needs. Oh, oh yeah, I know. There might be somebody with a, a bigger house or a fancier car. But honestly, in the long run, who cares? Who, I mean, really, who cares? You know, I seem to recall something about it that we're not supposed to covet one another's stuff. Hoping I'm stepping on some toes here today. There's a prayer from A.W. Tozer from his book, The Pursuit of God. And he, I think it's particularly fitting here. He wrote this, Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell here without a rival. I think that should be all of our prayers. We have a we have a Father who is infinitely patient, infinitely loving, infinitely caring, infinitely kind. And He has promised to meet our every need. I'm guessing it was more than just me who needed to hear this message this morning. Yep. And I'm going to invite you to just take to heart what God is speaking into you through what we just heard. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we confess to you that there have been times that we haven't trusted you. Forgive us. Lord, we want to have that childlike faith that calls you Abba, that faith that Jesus demonstrated in the garden to trust you because we know, Lord, that you are the one who has and will continue to supply all of our needs. Lord, would you take the truth of what we've just heard and plant it more deeply into our hearts that we might trust you more fully as our Father. Amen.